what's the solution to Danny's problem? Danny needs to solve his own problems. <laughs> Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast. And already it's been an eventful, eventful few hours in, in our world and not so much Phil's a cardo delivery, although you might have had one, but and a haircut. I've got hair envy. As an Arsenal fan, how do you feel about Mourinho being fired? Uh, it just brings joy. <laughs> a few more years of an empty trophy cabinet for Spurs. Now let me introduce our guests. So today we have the pleasure of catching up with one of England's greatest ever rugby players, a rugby World Cup winner, three times British and Irish Lion, and a two-time English Premier winner. By the time he hung up his books, he had 31 tries in 55 appearances, and his entertaining and intelligent nature ensured his off-pitch career as a journalist and commentator, was just as successful. Will Greenwood, MBE, welcome to the Wonderful People podcast. And straight off the back of what I can only imagine in the Greenwood household, with three kids and three dogs, was rather a busy Easter holiday. Yeah, so uh, big believer in the technical details. It's Dr. Will Greenwood, MBE. It's amazing. It's amazing what they'll give you when you win a World Cup. It's very in that case, in that case, oh, it's a Dr. Dan. The Doctor <laughs> of Civil Law from Durham University, received from Bill Bryson, which was a, a high point, a lovely little touch from from Durham, uh, which <laughs> is where I spent three of the greatest years um, of my life. It's starting to look at trips in the summer staycation mainly at the moment until we get a little bit more clarification but yeah. uh, life, life can't, life's not too bad here can't complain good and Will we always ask our guests this deep and meaningful question at the beginning um, but if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone who would it be and why potentially the co-author of my book that I've written this year uh, <laughs> who was ex-CEO of BBH and now CEO of an organisation called The Growth House we've Scared our editors at Random House by probably we might finish the second book before they've finished editing the first. Have a lot of fun with him. Uh, What's his name? He's called Ben Fennell. That would be if I wanted to be productive in the lift, I would have uh, Ben. My, my cousin Di, though, she used to present the golf and has married a chap called Nick who presents the golf on Sky. So a few hours with him could fix. I'm not rotating at the top of my backswing enough and not not completing the follow-through, so he could talk me through that. If I want to have a bit of fun, I'd have another City fan in there with me. I'd probably, I'd probably, probably have Liam. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that would I'd be have the whole of Oasis if I could, but that's not going to happen. A variety, a variety of different options. And then if I wanted mental well-being and calmness, I'd, I'd, I'd hope my wife would accompany me for the, for the duration of the lift stuck at, very good. Very good, good shout. Good, good shout. That's an interesting lift, that one. Yeah. So, Will, you grew up in a little town in Lancashire. Village. Village. Wasn't Not a town. Of the town. Technically, you could call it a hamlet, but you could you can hold your breath. Not just driving through it. You could probably hold your breath running through it. Right. You grew up in a little village stroke hamlet with two teachers as parents. So, tell us a little bit about the early years and how that shaped your direction of travel. Um, 
northern family, a uh, lot, very close. Mum is a twin, an identical twin, and had another sister who passed away with COVID last year, Auntie Jean. Oh, Spent yeah. a lot of time visiting family, friends, mainly family in the sort of Stockport, Ramsbottom, Rosendale, holidaying in Grange over Sands or Rose on Sea, the Costa del Rose. Um, very full of activities, climbing Scarfell Pike and Helvellyn, um, learning how to play bunker shots on the beach at Grange over Sands, um, dropping down into North Wales and entering every competition, Abergelly, Rudland, Mice D, uh, Rose on Sea, Denby. I mean, the golf, if a golf course had a competition, we rocked up, um, kicking a ball about in a back garden, whilst always trying to work out around the supermarket uh, if one banana costs 36p, what 11 bananas cost quickly before the calculator or the shop assistant could help us. Everything, or a game of cards. So everything was always, everyone have a hashtag nowadays. We were always hashtag trying to, hashtag beat the game. And uh, it didn't matter what the game was, um, but we made it, we met, we, if there wasn't one, we made it up. So competitive. Competitive, but more stimulant based. Right. Not competitive, I'm better than you, you're better than me. Actually collaborative. Brilliant. How can we how can we how can we do this slightly better with cousin James and Amy and Laura and my sister Emma and Tom and the list goes on. It was it was always there was the cards was competitive, but why'd you play that card then? All oh, right, yeah, okay, get you. So you're you're drawing out my big troops and my big card. You're playing it and you're following up because you've got king queen jack. So you just needed to get my ace out. So you played an eight. That's sort of how I've always been, and that it had a massive role in how I then played, played and continue to play sport, finding a way to leverage an opening to create a score. Fantastic one of the things that you're very famed for. That's super interesting in itself, just your, your, you know, your background and growing up. But just fast-forwarding quickly, you kind of um, mentioned you, mum was a teacher, maths teacher, I believe, and you went straight onto the trading floor um, for what we now know as HSBC. So what was, what was the era like in finance? Yeah, so I did a graduate recruitment scheme from Durham University where I studied economics. Got in, it was actually Midland Global Markets, which became HFBC whilst I was there. Um, and the graduate trainee scheme tends to take you through sort of corporate finance. A uh, couple of levels up, uh, suit, tie, long-term opportunities, less short-term in-out trade. The FX stuff, obviously the foreign exchange stuff, yes. But by and large, as a graduate, you sort of went and did placements around it. But I then... It, in areas where you're looking to develop and maybe spend. But basically, as a graduate, you're sort of viewed as someone who would end up on the corporate side, the corporate finance side, the longer term view. Um, I did a went down for a two week placement on the life floor, which is the London International Futures Exchange. It's a double F. I always forget what the other F is for. London International Foreign Future. Foreign, anyway, Future Exchange, which is where you wear a funny colour jacket and you shout and scream at each other a little bit like the final scenes in trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd where they're trying to sell pork bellies, but instead we traded interest rate bets. 
And um, I went down there and found a load of lads who basically, without stereotyping them, were at Faces Nightclub in Essex, sort of East End boys, came in from the east side of London on the central line. Uh, I was classically ex-private school, university, Chelsea, Fulham, came in on the district line. And you, you sort of came together as work colleagues, but never really, you'd, you'd do different things. And I went down there and thought, this is where I'm. This is where I like. So I stayed down there for two years instead, and um, that was an amazing place. Taught me so much. Unexpected. Three thousand people on a floor. Basically, the size of the floor was probably the size of a football pitch. Wow. And instead of having thirty on, you had three thousand in booths and in pits, and you have like you know not COVID friendly. You're on top of each other and you're shouting and screaming and your hand signals and you take and you're making errors and you're fixing them and and I can honestly say because before we became centralised and the euro came in, the Bundesbank, the German bank, would make its interest rate announcements on a Thursday and most things were factored into the market. So the reason um, the price isn't what you think the price should be because you expect the Bundesbank to cut rates or to raise rates or to leave it flat. When they did things that weren't expected, that price is then skewed. Then the world and his dog needs to trade and shift and get out of their positions or double down on their positions. And that's when I just say, honestly, the a Grand Slam beside a, a, a World Cup final pales into insignificance in terms of pressure and what the heck's going wow. on and I'm out of my comfort zone. So when you've done and been in a, been in a location like that, the breadth of training that that gives you, the breadth of transferability that it gives you to allow you to breathe, calm down, slow your thought process, make a right, make the right decision, make the least worst decision. Right. Is a really interesting idea about it because at times in our life, you just can't get out of trouble. You're you're stuck uh, on a sports field in business. What's the least worst decision? What's the decision that gets you out of there with your body still intact, your company still intact, uh, that you would not make if all things were rosy, but needs must. So um, always, and I took that, I think the lads who I played with perhaps thought on occasion I would have been negative about what the right call was at the right time. But that was sort of, okay, we play that, that's a really good upside. Utopian planet, sun shining, referee likes us, no injuries, all seeing it like a football or, you know, just then then great. Um, things not quite going right, things going against you. Then the odds, the parameters shift about the likelihood of that outcome. Whereas the likelihood of my place says we get away with it and we find ourselves down there and maybe six minutes later we get to where you want to get to now, but... We just have to sit on it a little bit. Really interesting. Brilliant. And that kind of segues in nicely. I mean, so you've spoken very sort of positively about your career in finance. So how or why did you decide to leave that career and go professional with rugby? After a long chat with my old man. Um, right. Yeah, he he was an ex-England captain and an England coach. You'd have thought he'd have been persuading me out of it. He got sacked as England captain, sacked as England coach. He probably said, take up croquet but um when rugby first turned professional in 1996 and the amateur game was up in arms uh and suddenly new clubs 
They are if you didn't take the opportunity to sort of sweep up and own rugby in England at the club level or at the regional level, always believing that players, of course, would want to play for England, therefore let the club sort themselves out and we'll just pick them as and when we need. Um, a few different people got hold of some clubs and uh, put new coaches in charge and these coaches who was amateur coaches like a sort of Dick Best, a very good amateur coach, a Lions coach, but nonetheless a sort of amateur coach who just coached who turned up, suddenly was responsible for contracts and player contracts and player welfare. And so I hadn't played for England when it turned pro. So we sort of got a one-size-fits-all. I think if you're at Harlequins and you played for England, they offered you 75 grand a year. If you're Harlequins and you hadn't played for England, you got offered 20 grand a year three years, take it or leave it. And, you know, you can talk about numbers. No, I was sort of earning, not huge money, but I was 21, 22, and I was earning sort of 50 grand a year in the city. I'm going, that doesn't stack up, does it? Why, why am I going to, why don't I just go down and play Roslyn Park with my mates, which was a club, a couple of divisions below. At the time, only one division below. Have some fun, keep the job. Lifestyle's great. And so the chat that I had with my old man, getting down to the point, was he said to me, just go find out if you're good enough. Right. Uh, and the only place to go find out if you're good enough, it's a really simple, goes back to hashtag beat the game. Go and play at Leicester. Go and plonk yourself behind a pack that's full of Cockrell, Garforth, Roundtree, Johnson, Richards, Wells, Bat, Poole. You know, it's 25 years later, that pack still rolls off the tongue. Um, fearsome crowd. And, uh, and ring your mate Oz. Austin, see if he fancies. He can come down from Royal, you come down from Queens. And if you haven't played for England within two years, pack it in. Oz had played for England within five months. I'd gone on a Lions tour as an uncut player within 11 months and played for England within 13 months. So um, I'd asked HSBC for a two-year layoff. I'm going to go, I'm going to try this. If it doesn't work, can I come back? They said yes. I went and just never went back, really. Wow. It's interesting because you just mentioned about being the an uncapped player, but you were the you were actually the last uncapped player ever to be selected to go on a British and Irish Lions tour. And they nearly sent me home for boozing. <laughs> they really. That's you can tell us that in the answers to this thing. It's really just what was it, what were your highlights and lowlights. So let's start with that. I, of all three tours, well, they they started well and got progressively worse. The Lions in 97 was amazing. I'd never played for England, so I walked into a team hotel in Weybridge and I'm looking around going, Keith Wood, you know, I could, Festo and Gibbsy, Scott Gibbs. And yeah. you, know, you just go around and you're thinking, wow. Um, Steve, as we called him, Gregor Townsend, because he looked like the groundsman at Northampton called Steve. We called him Steve. <laughs> um, so just... All these people who I now know by their nicknames, but I'm looking around going, blimey, hey, what am I, what's the skinny kid from Blackburn doing here? But McGeekin had taken a chance on me with, with Franny Cotton and took a bit of time to win Jim Telfer over because I was, a, I wouldn't say a loose player, but I, I wanted to find space. And Jim was very confrontational and win the physicality, but we, we grew to admire each other greatly. Um, and we won that tour. Then I went back in, but I got a serious injury, but it still was part of a winning tour. Went back in 01 to Australia and was 
playing the week before the first test and Wilkinson was at 10 and O'Driscoll was at 13 and I was at 12. It was like, this is it, man. This is, this is proper rugby we're playing here. And snapped all my ankle ligaments the week before the first test. Uh, nearly got it right for the third, but it, it just didn't quite get right. So I spent the three weeks of 01 following the tour with the crew, 18 hours a day, physiotherapy, ice baths, waking up, cryo chambers, desperately trying to get fit. 21 days of just a look back on it and just go, it's just a miserable time with this dream within arms reach and not quite being able to get there. And then in 05 we went and Clive's taken a load of grief, Clive Woodward for a 2005, but you could have taken an intergalactic world 15 in 2005, you'd have still got battered by New Zealand. I mean, they were just, that was a time when they were untouchable um, on, on their own patch as well. Uh, and ended up, of all the tours that I probably would have wanted to have got injured out of and buggered off home early, staying fit and getting picked. Um, and so played in a couple of test matches there and it was such an honour um, to play in that. And, you know, my... The, there is a, there is a. Before you think I'm being an arrogant old tosspot here, um, my one of my greatest, fondest, self-deprecating moments is the fact that my last touch in international rugby, so my last touch, which in international rugby was for the British and Irish Lions. So you, you know your last game in Test match rugby for the Lions, and, and it was a try-scoring pass. My last touch for the British and Irish Lions. I know, isn't that you know? So what a great way to go. The problem is. It was to Rico Gear of New Zealand, who <laughs> <laughs> went 80 metres and scored under the post. But not many can say their last touch in international rugby was to the British and Irish Lions. It was a try to you, know, you, can, you can edit out Rico Gear if you want. But, <laughs> but you know what, Will? I remember that. And I was never going to mention it in a million years, but you brought it up. But yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. It's a good game, though. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of sport is, but is that. Um, the ups and downs and injuries and coming back from injuries and uh, mental fortitude you know we're not Tibetan monks and we're not I said it's a we train but uh, we do our bit to try and achieve our goals and along that way it's not a straight line so but actually the wibbles and the wobbles and the windy bends are the bits that probably make you the player when you finally look back on your career that, and it allowed you to, to to peak by having the tough times. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you've mentioned your sort of so, so, you know small part of your club rugby career. We've talked about the Lions, but you know, obviously, we can't go without mentioning two thousand and three and just the journey that was. You know, you were one of the key players in Sir Clive Woodward's you know World Cup winning side, and yeah, you know, just obviously talk a little bit about about that. But I hadn't realised that your dad had actually coached him when you were just a kid. And so what, what was that like? What was your relationship like with Sir Clive Woodward? Not your dad. Woody, and I'm pretty sure this is right. Whenever I was fit, Woody picked me. From his first game to his last. And he even took me on a Lions tour in 05. So if I was fit, I had a great relationship. He picked me. And he, his great strength with a lot of other players, but sort of expand it out from the topic of me on that is he picked players for what they could do rather than what they couldn't do. Right. Um, there could have been a whole host of England coaches who picked up England in 1997. And I'm telling you, and it's not 
me asking you to say, oh, shut up. Tell you, I wouldn't have got one cap. Uh, he took a he took a chance uh, on a lad who many thought was an average defender, um, but could attack. And said, well, "Well, I'll have him for that." And who's a defensive coach, Phil? I'd teach him how to defend. Now the reality is, it's not quite as binary as that. I could defend, just wasn't known for it. Yeah, and ended up being quite a good defender at the highest level, but. Uh, everyone always remembers, you know, it's very bad. What was he good at? Bang, attack, right? He must have been rubbish at that. And I think that's what happens with with uh, with with a lot of players. Um, so back to Clive, uh, a really strong one. Um, he made me a vice captain once, valued my opinion, listened when I had something to offer, um, and facilitated and picked a backline in and around me. That complemented my skill set. Right. Now, obviously, just picking up something quickly, you mentioned earlier on about being on the trading floor and just the sheer, you know, sort of mayhem at a certain particular time. And, you know, it teaches you to make decisions. But that whole World Cup journey, there was some really, obviously, aside from the final and the drop goal that everyone knows and talks about, there were key moments in, you know, in many of those games where, you know, the game was switched and turned. And, do you feel like your previous career in, in, in finance and maybe the way you grew up, you know, enabled you to keep your head in those moments and enabled you to keep calm? I think certainly individually living away from rugby, having a life outside of rugby gives you experiences that you can draw on. Right. I think were you to look at that team, though, who also had real backstories to them, a lot of... IP, a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of life skills, a lot of emotional intelligence in that team. So that then sat very nicely with the experiences that we'd had in a team. But the, the big moments for us were, as a team, though, probably making or losing one game a year in the four years up to the World Cup. Uh, 03, there will be statos amongst you that say, you weren't unbeaten in 03. Technically, I'm going to argue we were. Technically, I'm going to say Clive put a second team out in Paris, in Marseille, and we got turned over by by the French. So but that's a technicality. We win together, we lose together, and that was part of our squad. It was about finding out who would go, but quite a lot of lads who played in that game didn't make the World Cup. Um, so, the, so I sort of discount that game as a learning process in the warm-up. What are the games I'm talking about are uh, Wales at Wembley in 99. Um, the first two I didn't uh, play in, weirdly enough, with injuries. The second was Murrayfield, 2000. Then it was Dublin, 2001. And Paris, 2002. And actually what gave us the ability to be very calm um, in Australia were the lessons we thought, thought we right. felt we had picked up in those defeats um, that meant we could have tough times in big games and ride it out and survive and wait and know that our chance would come. Yeah, brilliant. Really interesting. I've, I've just uh, read all, Eddie Jones's autobiography and he's he talks about those moments, you know, the ability to learn, learn from losing or in those big moments where the decisions don't get right, it's the changes you make to make a change the next time. And he's obviously had a brilliant career. I think, I think um, Phil, you've got a question around Eddie later on, haven't you? 
Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Yeah, I have. I'm just going to talk about university because um, university sort of shapes the person you are. Um, I know Nick Keller, who was one of your university mates, so we, we've got him in common. But who were the closest people to you during your playing career? Uh, well, weirdly enough, on Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays at seven o'clock in the morning, I certainly in lockdown, I have a four-man boat, four-man rowing crew, all on Zoom, and they're three Durham pals. So in lockdown, we've used it as a get-together. I mean, the absentee rate is low. We've, you know, we've put a shift in, and weirdly enough, we've now got ourselves kitted out with 1970s Adidas retro tracksuits. We've had badges printed and um, emblems sewn on to T-shirts. And um, I'm the last one to turn 50 next October. And we're going to start entering some of the world over 50s rowing comps and it'll be a good team that beats us. Wow. Uh, Is Nick one of those? So you can't have a cox really on an indoor rowing crew. Because uh, Nick comes in at about five foot six, um, so <laughs> he's not he's not in the crew. Uh, oh, poor Nick! Uh, but I still, you know, he, Nick was a chartered surveyor and rugby turned pro. As we were talking earlier on July the first, nineteen ninety six, and he set himself up as an agent, and he was my agent, and he's still my agent. Twenty five years later, and he's got father to one of my kids. Um, yeah, no, you know, I know change is good sometimes, but I think stability in certain areas of your life are key. And um, having someone off the field alongside me for all those years, keeping me on the straight and narrow, telling me, properly telling me when I'm being a numpty and when I need to sort my life out and occasionally blowing sunshine up backside when appropriate. Um, yeah. I found out recently why they say that phrase, <laughs> blowing sunshine up your backside, because drowning victims in the 16th and 17th century, they thought if they blew cigar smoke up your rectum, it might bring you back to life. <laughs> that is one of the most ridiculous pieces of, uh, of information I've ever heard. Yeah. yeah. Well, every day is a school day, Dan. Every day is a school day. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the mic drop moment. We can add that one into our data questions. Really. That was a bit of data you didn't know, Dan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of talk around data in sport at the moment, and I know Eddie Jones is keen to adopt a more data-driven approach. What are your thoughts on how data and tech are influencing the game and that of others? Yeah, it's got to be augmented AI. Augmented AI is there's a human alongside the artificial intelligence looking at the extrapolating the data, having a look at potential links, testing links, sticking it back into the system, watching, but also knowing knowing the player behind the stats, knowing if it gets to 60 minutes and the stats say, you know, let me go with my team, the stats say Martin Johnson's numbers are starting to tire. I'm still not, still not taking him off because if he needs to get to a tackle, if he needs to get to a support line, he might be tiring. 
but it'll still do it. Uh, it still find a way to, to to find the energy to get there. Whereas there are other players who actually, when it gets to sixty, their levels are dipping. And you know what? That's that that's them done. They've they've run their race, and that's fine. And it's it's being able to understand understand the people behind the stats in science. And sort of a long-winded answer to go, the Luddites' time is done. You know, the computers ain't going anywhere. And what the computers can give you, what the data can give you, is extraordinary insight into trends um, and potential opportunities. But if you are purely data-driven, I think a good team will find a way to beat you. A good team of street fighters. You know, old masters and young Turks, you sort of look at it from that perspective. You could have a team completely built on data science and a team completely built out of street fighters with his wisdom experience. The, the reality is um, you need a little bit of both yeah. in, in your team to read the data, understand the data, know when to pull the chuffing plug and just get the job done and know when to relax and put the handbrake on and pause and go, what are we missing? Let's have a look. That's what we're missing and go again. Right, great answer. No, really interesting. And talking talking of data, you're now sort of working with a firm specialising in, in AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why that appealed to you? Yeah, um, Affinity is an organisation I've been involved in for eight years. It used to be called SatMap. It was set up by an American Pakistani called Zia Shisti, who wrote some code on his table and understood that basically originally based around the, the voice operations of a contact centre, he explored the dynamic at if a man spoke to a man or a man spoke to a woman or a woman spoke to a man or a woman spoke to a woman, can you artificially create better conversations, revenue-driven conversation? Are you more likely to have a better customer touch point if you pair people according to their sex? Right. And that's one variable. I think we now put in about two and a half million variables into the algorithm. And... By the way, the original data said that if you paired people according to sex, you got a better outcome. And then he's spent 15 years building it up to an organisation now, which is all about behavioural pairing uh, across customer touch points. So I'm very wary because I'm not sure who from Affinity might be listening that it, we're not a contact centre solution. We are a customer enhancement, a customer conversation solution whereby any organization that has multiple touch points with their customers on the data we have around that customer from their cookies, from their data analytics, from their web surfing, from their browsing that's all readily available, uh, aligned with the historical data you have on your either people operating your web chats or people offering operating as an agent or a service provider in a call center what their historical outcomes have been with certain behavioral types it all goes into our magic black box you call up you ring up a telco or an insurance agent where we're operating and you're more likely to be paired with a human being that you are more likely to have a better conversation with. Uh, and we, we take the delta, we take the uplift in performance and have a little commercial negotiation. So we only win if you win. So if we don't increase your performance, 
the beautiful thing about affinity is you don't give us any cash if and sorry when we increase your performance um we'll just have a small piece of your pie thank you very much i think you're talking to the right guy in dan yeah i understood that i love that i'm i'm already processing who this could be good for in my clients and yeah as partners and you know where to integrate that because i think that's a super smart way of being able to bridge a very traditional process one person for another person with not only me i'll go a step further then and say why are we so precise our beauties were precisely measurable this this is the bit where you're going to go oh man that's good because <laughs> we turn our system at full rollout we're on for 80 percent of the time and off for 20 percent of the time which goes back to me so we're on for 20 minutes and off for five minutes and the off is your organization's average performance Right. With all the marketing spend you're putting out there, all the amazing offers you put into your customers, all the metrics you've got in place, bang, that's you. We know that's you. Right, we just turn a little switch. Again, to my friends at Affinity, apologies for making it sound so simple, but it really is a switch. <laughs> right. Data process everything. It goes in with our thousand data scientists we have in our back office growing exponentially. And we turn it on and then we see what the levels of performance are. And there's a difference and it's on and off. And the only people who can tell me how much we've done is the customer itself. That, that, and for someone who's involved in maths, I love it because it's just simple, just beautifully simple. Brilliant. And uh, the fact that Dan, Dan also is a data expert, so I'm going to get him off this subject because he'll <laughs> carry on for hours. We can nerd out Just right talking now. about data. But I, I look at other things you've been involved in currently, and it's exhausting just looking at the list. Uh, you've got the Festival of Sport. You've written a new book in lockdown. You mentioned earlier you've co-written. You're a journalist for The Telegraph for over 16 years. But they're all, they're all passions. They're all passions. And yeah. added to that commentary for Sky Sports. And... Yeah, I don't do that anymore. But they've got no oh, you rugby. don't do that? Okay. No, I'm, I'm going I'm to commentate for the Lions. Love rugby. So I can cut, I can nudge off the two rugby ones. Love rugby. Written for the Telegraph this morning. Um, stayed up till midnight on Saturday night and midnight on Sunday night when the kids had dropped into bed and watched all the Premiership games. Taken notes. Bang. Lo still love analysing. Still love seeing the next kid, new kid on the block coming through, and writing about those. That marries up very nicely with Sky. So that's been a lovely, lovely career pathway for sort of, that. Basically, took up two or three days a week for 15, 16 years. As the space has opened up, that's offered me the opportunity to go into affinity. The charity stuff with Bourne is because Caro and I have always sort of felt that uh, Freddie, who was born too early, too soon, in, in was born not long enough into the pregnancy to be to, to, to survive and was only alive for an hour. We've always felt, let's do something so that more parents don't ever have to go through that. Let's do something to support the doctor, Mark Johnson, who then allowed us to have three more kids. So passion from both our sides. The Festival of Sport is part of an organisation. We've mothballed it for three or four years so we found the right opportunity. So we're relaunching Festival of Sport in the summer. What a great year to do that. Uh, Norfolk, Holcomb Hall, uh, World Cup winners, Ashes winners, Olympic gold medalists, a Commonwealth gold medalists, athletics, athletics dissolving, dragon boat racing, uh, little mini music festival on the Saturday night, driving cinema on the on, on the Friday, sorry, music festival on the Saturday, local food produce from Norfolk, 
um, probably about 1,600 to 2,000 people will attend, family-based, and the strapline really is no one's left on the bench come. Our greatest joy will be mums rediscovering netball or dads rediscovering touch rugby and going back and getting involved in their community, whilst at the same time kids coming up thinking they just want to do two days of cricket in the net and going away going, wow, uh, I, I've got to go and have a game of hockey. I just might have totally changed my mind about what the sport it is. So a lot of the taster sessions. And so that's going great. I won't announce who it is. We've just signed a major partner for that. Um, and all systems go on that. So uh, that's a festival of sport. UK.com, www.festivalofsportuk.com. So that's in there. What else did you, did you mention? Written a book because uh, I've always been a big fan of Matthew Saeed. Um, he's a great writer yeah reading a really good one at the moment by Adam Grant called Think Again um, the power of knowing what you don't know um, so the ability to rethink and unlearn actually intelligence and it sounds strange intelligence can be a curse as you get older you get more increasingly set in your ways we find that the really successful people can earn, unlearn what they know and rethink and look at things with a different optic, even though what may have got them there has been very successful, it's not enough to take them to the next stage. So right. love that. So on the back of that, when rugby went into lockdown, I rang the Telegraph and said, can I do three articles and try and be a mini Matthew Saeed? Uh, feedback, pressure and speed were the three topics I chose. Then halfway through it, I thought, this could work as a, with more business, but I'm, my business pedigree isn't good enough. My friend, Ben Fennell, CEO of BBH, 16 years, literally rang him, he lives down the road in Wokingham, rang him up and said, do you want to help me write a couple of articles at Telegraph? I mean, his cadence of work rate is insane. Said, yeah, good, right, bang. Before I know it, we'd wrote sort of 16 chapters. Uh, and we oh. said, should we just keep going until lockdown ends? Anyway, 90,000 words later, we're creating all the visuals for it at the moment. It, was meant to be on the bookshelves for all the Lions fans at the airport heading off. It'd be perfect sort of time. There's been mothballed a little bit. So September 2nd or 3rd, our book called, uh, what's it called? I'm not sure we've released, I think it's going to be called something along the lines of world-class, uh, how to le learn, live, learn and lead like a champion. Uh, we've interviewed 50 megastars. I mean, it could be Dana Strong, the new CEO of Sky. It could be Philip Jansen or Jeremy Derrick. It could be Carolyn McCall from the business world, ITV, Sky, BT. I've just sort of mentioned Alan Jope, Unilever. Or we drop in and we speak to Helen Richardson-Walsh. Um, we speak to Helen Glover. We drop in and chat to Michael Johnson. We talk to Dan Carter and Jason Fox. So we've tried to really, it's the ability to celebrate difference, forge togetherness and accelerate growth is, is the themes we're picking up on. And so we've made sure that there's a huge, it's not about necessarily, uh, the book isn't about gender and um, colour and it's more about and diversity in that aspect. It's, 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 it's about cognitive diversity and making sure your teams are always packed with pack it with difference and you know the, the simplest way of describing it is you, you look at me and mike tyndall and go well you're pretty much the same he's from wakefield you're from blackburn you're white you're rugby players wakefield you're private school you're like 
come on, where's the difference there? You kid, he, he's from Venus and I'm from Pluto. <laughs> uh, everything I did, he couldn't do. Everything he did, I couldn't do. And so we then sort of broke that very simple idea down and went into all these different organisations. And yet every time I played with him, it was like I was invincible, superhuman, as long as I had him alongside me. Um, we would take him away from me. It was like packing me with kryptonite and I became weedy and weak. Um, so we just explored those sorts of ideas. Um, and so that was a passion. So, and and that's, yeah, just we're literally editing that final words. In fact, chapter 15 came through and hopefully people, it'll be uh, an ability to pick up and go, I'm struggling with pressure at the moment. Here's five or six ideas. I'm struggling how to feed back to my team. Uh, what, what does generosity mean in the workplace or in a sports team? What does teamship mean? Um, you know all these things we don't necessarily address leadership because we think leadership's packed into all these topics but that's out later in the year wow so so i said you had a lot going on yeah what did you spare time you mentioned uh, one of the charities you mentioned freddie and then your wife when your wife was pregnant with your second child you were overseas playing yeah a bit uh, did I read that Sir Clive Woodward booked you on every single flight going out? Well, technically, case? technically, yeah. he didn't book them because he'd have sent me to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wouldn't have had a clue where it was going to. But Louise Ramsey booked me on every single flight, our team manager, on the instruction of Clive, making sure that um, if I wasn't, if I needed to go, I needed to go. Because I found out that basically my eldest son who's just turned 17 uh it looked like he was going to be born too soon again and so i got a phone call in the perth hotel before we played south africa in the world cup of 03 i think on the monday night from mark johnson uh, the doctor saying i think you need to come home i was like i didn't know what to do so i spoke to clive and said look this is what i do so i made a decision to stay but he said if you change your mind before saturday you're on every plane and just go. So we didn't tell the rest of the team. I played without telling the team um, and then announced it in the changing room and went to the airport, flew home and came back sort of a week later. Missed missed the smile again. Wow. It's an interesting stuff. Can I stick on family for a moment? Yeah. Um, I saw a recent tweet that you posted about your daughter's maths teacher. Oh, yeah. Um, and to your daughter, I think she said, write an equation to represent Danny's problem. Danny needs to solve his own problems, my friend. That's what she said, didn't she? That sounds great. Yeah, I think it's some lines of, you know, I think there was more to the mass question. If um, Danny buys seven apples and two bananas, what's the solution to Danny's problem? Danny needs to solve his own problems. <laughs> what a, it's just such a brilliant answer. Yeah, so, um, well done for capturing that on a tweet. She sees things. Um, so you talk about learning. Uh, I've learned more from Matilda, um, and so has Cara, than, than anything else we've ever done in our entire life. It's absolutely reframed every every perspective we thought about parenting and uh, support has been completely ripped up, thrown away, and and un- and relearned. Um, from the ground up so but 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 you know I'm always it always tends to be me that gets asked the question here whereas the real hero the real well the real hero is Matilda 
who's uh, incredible. But the real hero within this of managing us as a family unit and allowing uh, Matilda to flourish and allowing us to understand how to allow Matilda to flourish has, has, has been my Mrs. Caro. So um, I often get to be the one that gets interviewed about it and clumsily answer the question. Um, but um, yeah, there's only one driving force in this family and that's that's her. Well, Do you know what though? She was fourth choice to get in the lift with you. Yeah. Well, I quickly readjusted that, didn't I? I was halfway down the list and thought... You sneaked one in there. <laughs> that's, that's wisdom right there. By the way, by the way, I hasten to add, but the, the reason I say that is because, you know, we, we joke about things that you probably shouldn't joke about, but if there was a fire in our house, the first person she would... First thing she would rescue would be the children. The second thing she would rescue would be the dogs. The third thing she would rescue would be the pictures of the children. <laughs> She would rescue would be the pictures of the dogs. <laughs> thing she would rescue would be me. Hence, she was fifth in my lift. <laughs> I fifth out of the house. <laughs> There's some kind of equilibrium there. Brilliant, fantastic. And Will, Will you've spoken about um, you know on you know people's opinions online and the echo chamber that is social media, but you you openly speak about the impact of online abuse and you know how freely negative comments are slung at you know both supporters you know, commentators and press. How different is it in sport now? And, and do you remember it being such a, a big part of life as an elite sportsman? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the abuse we used to get would be the mark you'd get in the Sunday Times. Right. After the game, and that was about it. You couldn't you couldn't get any more. Or maybe CFAX yeah. would have a bad sentence to say about you, but it'd be misspelt so you could claim it was someone else. Um, so... Oh look, it's gone gone through gone through the roof now in terms of people's ability to feed back into people and be be hugely aggressive. Um, I can't walk in other people's shoes, right? So I can't answer for everyone. I don't give a flying monkey's what people write about me. You know, the, one of the I pick up little phrases along the way, and one that I probably wasn't very good at when I was a professional athlete and you're selfish and you're growing up is, well, let's let's step forward to now, and I can say what maybe I did years ago, but Mark Twain said, if you only tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. If you only tell the truth, you know. You just, so what I say on a television, or what I see and what I write in a newspaper is what I genuinely believe is happening right here, right now in front of me. And I would be prepared to say that to their sister, their mum, their dad, which, and be able to hopefully describe why. Right. One thing just to say, that's not very good. The other thing is then to be able to say, and these are the reasons why. And so I don't, whilst I'm excitable, I don't tend to engage in clickbait. The enthusiasm on the pre-match stuff is just whatever's coming into my head. This is amazing. I'm just another fan. The anal the analysis, the breakdown of individuals' performance, understanding that that's their livelihood, that's everything they've wanted to do all their life, and they have a family behind them watching, is then, okay, don't try and kid the watcher who's seeing exactly what you're seeing. Um and the great book is Radical Candor, 
don't give people ruinous empathy and say nice things about them, but actually it does no one any good when you, everyone knows that was not a great performance. My wife describes it a very different way. She says, serve shit sandwiches, <laughs> right? So say something nice, say what you they've done wrong and finish and leave them by feeling nice about themselves. So you, you could, for all that, blurb that I've just said maybe my wife should be she's better than me at everything else so why should she do the commentary well only because she never got in the lift yeah uh, and well we're coming to land now we're coming to land final question um as an agency we're all about making complex problems wonderfully simple so what's one of life's complexities that you'd like to see made simpler uh Communication system with my builder at the moment. <laughs> yep. Where where what you definitely said on the phone or agreed to actually happens. Yeah, I think there's many listeners that can vouch for that. Yep. Is that a language barrier? A language barrier between normal people and builders? Is that, uh, he, he could probably hear me. I'm sure, Simon, if you are, I wouldn't name the company. If you are listening, I love you really. <laughs> Get my building done, finished, pronto. <laughs> Great answer. Thank you, Will. Nice one, Troops. Well, that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.